and welcome to Comic Boom, the comics and education podcast. If you're an educator interested in using comics in the classroom, then this is the podcast for you. My name is Lucy Starbuck Bradley, and each week I'll be joined by a fellow educator, an academic, a librarian, or a creator of comics to discuss their journey into comics and provide some inspiration to influence your practice. And this week I am joined by the amazing illustrator and writer. Dave Shelton. Dave started off his career with his slapstick comedy noir comic strip, Good Dog, Bad Dog, which appeared in the DFC comic, which was the precursor to The Phoenix, and it also appeared in The Phoenix and in The Guardian, and is collected in two books by David Fickling Books. His debut prose novel for children, which was an illustrated middle grade fiction, A Boy and a Bear in a Boat, was shortlisted for the Costa Prize and the Carnegie Medal and won the Bramford Bowes Award. Absolute brilliant book. We'll talk about that in a little while. And since then, he's penned the Emily Lyon Detective Librarian series, and most recently, due to come out in August with David Fickling Books, an illustrated middle grade fiction called Monster in the Woods. I have a lot of love for A Boy in a Bear in a Boat. I read it to my class early on in my teaching career when it first came out, and we all absolutely loved it. I have a lot of happy memories of that time, just a couple of years into being a teacher. A brilliant story that we all really, really enjoyed. I was lucky enough to receive an advanced copy of A Monster in the Woods as well. We don't actually talk about it much in this conversation. We just had a great old chat about comics, but it is a great read. The tagline of the book is, I've seen some reviews, is full of wit and wisdom. Monster in the Woods is a future classic tale about family, friendship and first impressions. I would definitely agree with that. We touch on in this conversation, the kind of messages and morals of Dave's stories and there's a clear message running through A Monster in the Woods uh, about not necessarily believing everything you hear or, or taking what you hear on face value which is a really important message and it's very well told throughout the story. I loved the illustrations too I felt they really added to the characterization for me in developing the characters in the story. We talk about Dave's approach to creating illustrated novels in this conversation and how his writing has been inspired by comics both as a reader and a creator of comics um, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Here's what Dave had to say. Hello Dave, welcome to Comic Hello. Boom. very happy to be here Lucy. Thanks so much for spending the time to come on the podcast today. I'm a big fan of your books. I'd like to start off by asking all of the guests to give us a bit of an intro into their journey as a comics reader. Where did that all start for you? Um, well, uh, my earliest memory of reading at all is is reading a comic when on holiday with my parents and my two brothers we arrived at the uh, little static caravan that my my parents had on the norfolk coast and i had a copy of i think it was something called tv fun or something but that's probably false memory and i was waving it at my at my dad having just arrived at, at the caravan saying read me some of this because i was uh, even at that age very excited about comics i was waving at my dad saying read me some of this and uh, he was saying, well no because i've got to get all the stuff out of the car because we've just arrived and you know i'm kind of busy so he sat me down with it at a table and opened the comic up in front of me and said, just just look at the pictures, I'm sure you can work out the story. And I kind of did. And that was my first, kind of my first act of reading, was reading some pictures and getting a story which probably was not the right story out of a, out of a comic strip. I guess in that way, it was probably your first writing as well, because you were kind of oh, writing. Yeah. <laughs> or miswriting, yeah. And my memory of it, again... 
I can't verify any of this. It's probably all wrong. My memory of it was that it was a Laurel and Hardy strip. So this would be 1970s sometime. So I, I like the idea that, that that was my first act of writing because writing for Laurel and Hardy, that's not bad, is it? I've essentially mined Laurel and Hardy for... I've done slight variations on that dynamic of a double act in, in several of the things I've done. So I've, I've shamelessly ripped them off for years. <laughs> and what happened throughout school? So that was before school. Did your your love of comics oh, carried yeah. on? How yeah, did yeah, that yeah. sort of intersect or flow into your reading in general? Or did you have quite a wide range of reading tastes as a child? Or were you very much someone that was kind of just stuck to one form? In as far as I can remember, I was I was all over the place. The love of comics started early and, and stayed. So I was reading British humour comics, Dandy Beano, Wizard and Chips, that kind of thing, very early on. And then graduated to war comics, Warlord, and later Battle. And then, not as soon as it came out, but a year or so after, got into 2000 AD. And in between that, there was there was Action. Do you know about Action? Which got banned for a while, and then I have not heard it, of that. It was so it was a British kind of adventure comic, but had this reputation for being much more violent than most. I have to remind myself of this when I see kids saying they've seen such and such a film. I think, oh, that's that's a bit strong for your age. I think actually I was reading Action yeah. about the age of seven, which had lots lots of things in it were were thinly veiled ripoffs of of big films of the time. So there was a variation on Jaws called Hook Jaw which was just a big shark chewing people up week after week. <laughs> immense amounts of <laughs> severed limbs and blood all over the place. And I had no qualms at all about reading that at seven. But uh, I remember seeing my nephews playing violent video games at about the age of nine and being appalled and thinking, what's my brother thinking? What a terrible parent he is. And then having to cast my mind back and go, oh, no, fair enough. I think I, think I turned out all right. <laughs> but anyway uh, yeah exactly children are quite yeah, resilient so. aren't they 2000 AD was where it all kind of went a bit more serious instead of reading a comic and then throwing a comic away I read a comic and I kept the comic and then I put the next week's comic on top mm. and then there was a pile of comics and then there was two piles of comics and then there were eventually two suitcases of comics that lived in my parents attic long after I left the house so 2000 AD importantly that had credits for who'd written and who'd drawn stuff. So that was where I kind of started to go, oh, yeah, Brian Bolland, he's, oh, I really like his stuff. And I can still remember the names of relatively minor 2000 AD artists 40, 40-odd years later. I've, I do find that the fandom element really fascinating. I think because I'm sort of on the outside looking in on that, that's not something that's ever been part of my kind of world or enjoyment of comics. So I find it very interesting. I would kind of reject the label of collector in that I was never buying the comic, putting it in a plastic sleeve and keeping it pristine. I was building up yeah, those yeah, piles yeah, of comics yeah. such that I could read and reread to destruction and some keep of them. going back the, the, uh, those yeah. earliest two yeah, those ladies really were, were st- hanging off the, the staples by a thread you know <laughs> they were really really yeah, raggedy it wasn't it was the story that you wanted to yeah, keep going back yeah, to yeah. rather than the object yeah that's really interesting i mean i mean there's a, a level of obsessive compulsiveness about that that perhaps wasn't warranted by the the quality of all the narratives but that was love of the medium as much as 
as you know of, of the material itself i guess and in terms of your engagement with comics at that point was that where your kind of first interest in drawing came from or were they kind of running in parallel were you creating your own comics as a child and, and drawing a lot based on what you were reading i think i think the drawing was there separately but i think the comics fed it a great deal I don't think I'd have mm. retained such an interest in in drawing if it hadn't been for comics, and I don't think I don't think I'd be a writer without having had comics in my life from an early age. Why do you think that oh, is? Can you um, unpack that a little bit for us? Uh, just because uh, the way I kind of slightly simplify my my journey to being some kind of a writer is that I started off liking to draw i studied to be an illustrator i became an illustrator through illustrating a bit and through having a love of comics i got to have a go at writing and drawing comics and then from there i was writing in one form and it was you know another step on to to write prose rather than just mm. speech balloons there was some engagement with writing for its own sake at, at school age but i hadn't really thought about writing prose since leaving school until I did my own comics for a little bit and then they were being published by a children's book publisher who seemed like a chap I could ask could I have a go at writing some kind of a kids novel I went to a regional awards ceremony once and afterwards they had loads of the nominated authors just do kind of sessions with groups of school kids that were there. Mm -hmm. And there's about five of us lined up taking questions from the audience. And, and one of the questions was kind of, what was your path to being published, essentially? And it kind of came down the line, I was last. And everybody was going, well, I, you know, I, was, I always deeply loved writing. And I wrote just obsessively from a very young age. And then in around about my 20s, I wrote my first novel and it got rejected. And then I wrote my second novel and and that got rejected and then I wrote my third novel and then I, I managed to get an agent and but my novel still got rejected and then after lots of rewrites and lots of years of bitter struggle I finally got a, a you know, some kind of a publishing deal with somebody you'd never heard of and I've worked my way up painfully and slowly from there and these four writers kind of all had similar stories like that and I went, oh, well, I, I, I drew some comics and then uh, I, I was <laughs> doing this yeah, doing this for David Fickley, out of David Fickley books. And so uh, the comic that I was doing it for went under. So I said, can I have a go at writing? And he said, yes. I suddenly felt very hot on one side of my face and realised that all these other authors were going, you what? <laughs> <laughs> you, you just asked nicely. And that's how you got, <laughs> you're kind of, and you know, there was, there was a certain amount of, and I was, I was coming to it very late. I was writing my first novel at about the age of 40. So I like to think all those years of bitter struggle I'd kind of done internally without troubling any agents or editors with, <laughs> or indeed, or indeed <laughs> yeah. any laptops or, or sheets of paper with, with the kind of bad novels I should have written first before doing my first you know, proper, yeah. proper published book. 
I would like to just loop back a little bit to reading before we oh, yeah. talk a little bit more about writing and your work in general, which is just, I wonder what you're reading, what are you reading currently? Whose work do you particularly admire? What's on your current reading um, pile? Well, we recently moved house and I'm much closer to our local library than I used to be. So I'm, I'm getting loads of stuff out of the library, which is great. Big up to the library. It turns out that Suffolk County Libraries has a much better graphic novel selection than my local library doesn't particularly. But, you know, you go online and go, what you got? Oh, fantastic. Loads of stuff. So I recently read In by mm-hmm. Will MacPhail, which I'd heard a lot about and thought it can't possibly be as good as all these Ray reviews. And it absolutely is amazing piece of work he's british and he's a cartoonist who gets stuff into the new yorker regularly you know gag cartoons and then he went i think i'll do a sustained i don't know 250 page graphic novel whatever it is is a big big chunk of book and it's fantastic it's beautifully done it's really really funny and it sounds you know it's it's exactly it's very funny but it's also very moving but it really is and with a brilliant lightness of touch and beautifully drawn. So in by Will McPhail, that's very good. Finally, he's a mate of mine, Alexis Deacon. Not a close mate, but I, I know oh, him yeah. a bit. I did the, he did a, does a comics and graphic novel short course oh, at Goldsmiths right. University. And I've done that with Alexis. Yeah, so, yeah. He can draw a bit. Anyway, his thing from No Brow, which is now called Curse of the Chosen. I read that recently and that's, that's pretty amazing too. It's just, just a stupid amount of work as well. <laughs> and working in a in a genre, it's it's kind of a fantasy thing, which normally I would not go near. I'm not really bothered about normally world building and all that is normally a, a phrase I would run away from. But and and a brilliant ability to keep different story strands with you know, follow different characters along different story strands and keep it all coherent and the kind of stuff i can't do plot wise very well at all so that was that was great but you know, most mostly just really amazing to look at because because he draws like such a dream and yeah. i also recently read why don't you love me by paul b rainey visually his style is not so much my kind of thing but doing some very interesting stuff ideas wise I wanted to talk to you about your own sort of processes and there's, you know, lots of things I'm really interested in. The first thing, I guess, was around... So I read Monster in the Wood, which was incredible. I'm going to dip into that a little bit later on. But in the front of that book, you talk about starting to write that with the intention of it being a picture book and then it it coming out as a sort of an illustrated, longer-form, middle-grade novel in the end. And I just wondered, how do stories present themselves to you and how do you know how where they're going to end up when you think of a story are you thinking oh this is a perfect comic story or this needs to be a prose novel i suppose the diff is that true i was going to say the the default is normally prose novel at the moment because that's mostly what i've been doing the last few years although i'm very keen to get back to doing some comics but it's it's a little bit that I'm I'm kind of mostly on the lookout for ideas that would that would be suitably done as prose or illustrated prose. There is a, there is a degree of having an idea and thinking, oh, what does that want to be? And I I do kind of mm-hmm. see it in that hands off. It's not about what I choose to make it; it's about what it wants to be. What would best? Yeah, what would best suit that narrative? And mostly the ideas are something very very tiny that grows a bit 
and becomes something interesting that grows a bit more and you know it's a snatch of dialogue heard while nipping to the shop on the corner kind of thing and you hear the middle of a sentence and complete mm. it and then you think oh that's interesting and then maybe that's interesting enough to imagine the next sentence and then not interesting beyond that or maybe it's something that turns into an idea for a comic strip that I may or may not ever draw or maybe it turns into a novel and obviously even you know even if it's quite a good idea they can't, can't all be novels because I only write one about once every two or three years and then there's a load of graft to turn it into a thing my process is that i start off with this fairly fuzzy idea of what it's going to end up as it's never this kind of pristine vision of some platonic idea of the perfect novel or anything so it starts off as fairly fuzzy and then i aim to complete something within that that fuzzy vision and then miss and it becomes something else entirely along the way and that's something that I came to accept quite early on and indeed embrace. Often the phrase is about trusting the process is mentioned a lot when it comes to writing. It's that kind of don't worry about having it all stuffed before you start, but just get, get in, get sat down and just start. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't so much trust in the process as, as trust in my editors and, and all, all, all the lovely people <laughs> at David Fickley Books to say, Oh, this isn't turning out well, Dave. If it's not turning out, just having that safety net gives you it gives you a greater freedom with your with your first draft to just go. Oh, yeah, it's it's it, it can be it can be wide of the mark at this point, and it it doesn't matter too much. Mm. And we'll we'll sort out the rest later. And it makes it, or has thus far for me, made it a lengthy process. You know, I really envy these people who can who can knock out a book in six months because it takes me a lot longer. Even even without taking into account the large number of illustrations I'm normally putting into them as well. How do you make those decisions around the level of illustrations that go into an illustrated prose book? Is it like a commercial decision in terms of the cost, or is it a story-led decision? And how do you get that balance right? Well, here's here's how it's gone in the last few books. There's there's an initial very hard line economic decision on my part where I say oh, it's going to be illustrated but it's not going to be so heavily illustrated because it's just it just takes me too long so I'm going to do like 60 illustrations okay that's how it's going to be and I'm thinking and I'll keep most of them quite small and uh, and then <laughs> and then I write the first draft of the book and then I rewrite and rewrite and then by the time I'm il- I start illustrating it I've forgotten how hard work and how long it took illustrating the previous book and I I knock out some illustrations and then the designer and the editors and all the other people say oh it'd be it'd be quite nice if uh, this bit here was illustrated and this this is this is good but don't don't think this deserves a double page spread and at every stage <laughs> think well I mean it's more work but I can see that they're right and then it creeps up and creeps up and I end up doing twice as many illustrations as I intended and it takes far too long. But hopefully, hopefully it ends up a better, better book. It's worth it. Yeah. When you're actually writing the words of the story, as part of that process, are you thinking, oh, this would be a good visual image as you're writing or are you very much just focused on the story and then you look at it again with fresh eyes and think about where the where the images could go? It varies a bit from 
from book to book, but mostly I just kind of write it. There's, there's maybe some of it I visualise a bit as I go along and think, you know, there's some scope for a nice illustration, but mostly I just write it. I, I think part of it is I still feel as if the writing is something that I'm still getting to grips with. And I would claim that all my books are good, but they're good because I've rewritten them quite hard, quite a lot. The first drafts have been really quite ropey. And yeah, mostly I just rely on the fact that I'm going to doggedly go back to it and do the boring graft of of drafting and redrafting. And largely, largely that's something I want to address. It's something I want to make more of an organic thing with the the illustration and develop them both alongside each other. There's, There's ways in which having more visual development early on would would help with the writing yeah that's really interesting like the visualization of it and also minimize minimize the amount of instances of illustrative me going what on earth was he thinking the who, who, Why did who I write whoever, that? <laughs> whoever wrote this they just had no regard for the illustrator whatsoever <laughs> idiot i'm working with an idiot but yeah writer me goes ah it's not me i don't have to do it <laughs> despite the fact that no no you really do <laughs> we're discovering you've got some split personality what i'm saying you. lucy is i'm quite stupid about it all i've got i've got an observation that i don't know whether you would agree with but i'm just going to put it out there i feel that your actual writing is quite informed by comics this is something that i noticed reading monster in the woods and you might not see it as a direct link but it, it kind of popped up to me that on a on chapter ends when you're sort of transitioning from one chapter and starting the next often in that kind of juxtaposition of what's happening there's like some humor or feels like a deliberate contrast like you ended on one point and then the next chapter starts somewhere else but there's almost a joke in that kind of that, that transition that feels very like something that would happen between a panel to panel in a comic or a page turn and i just wondered what you thought about that? Uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, I try to make chapter ends not quite a cliffhanger, but there's yeah, there's a moment of humour or there's there's a moment of contrast. I think certainly the comics I have read have massively influenced my writing. I think there's there's stuff about how I there's, there's also stuff to the detriment possibly in that any any time I have to just describe. Uh, yeah, just describe. Actually, I don't need anything beyond that. Anything, I, anytime I have to describe, <laughs> I, ju- I just say, oh, yeah. <laughs> somebody should draw the picture. I shouldn't, shouldn't have to do this. Yeah. You know? I was interested. This is a bit slightly dorky question. Excellent. Is, is it about what pen I use? Is it? Is it? I don't even know if anyone else in the world is interested in this. It's not about what pen you use, but it is about black and white illustrations. Oh, okay. okay. So what, this is what I was thinking about. I literally, I don't know if the rest of the world cares about this, but I was wondering about it because I quite like drawing in black and white. I'm presuming that your illustrations are like ink drawings, but I don't know. Maybe you could confirm that. Yeah, it's normally some kind of a fibre tip pen. Okay. So when you're thinking about the world that you're putting down onto Mm. paper, is it in your mind black and white or are you thinking of that world in colour or does it in your mind appear in black and white? Um, that presupposes... This isn't, this is a, uh, for me, this is a very big question. I'm having, (laughs) I'm having to think, um, what I do when I draw. I think that presupposes a level of visualisation 
in my head which I am seldom prone to. Is that true? <laughs> uh, I think I think I kind of start drawing. I'm sure it's something that happens unconsciously, but I'm yeah. just wondering what it, what is going on in the subconscious. I've got this kind of pet. Well, it's not a theory. It's it's kind of it's it's kind of thought in process about the comedy producer John Lloyd, who did like Blackadder and Not the Night News and all kinds of things back in the day. He's got a thing about absenteeism. It's about getting out of the way, and I think. He was talking about it in terms of parenting and saying, you know, we fret and we fret about, you know, the best way to be a parent. And actually the truth is mostly you just need to get out of the way because they'll be all right. And you just need to be kind of a presence ready for when anything goes wrong and pick up the pieces. But mostly you get out of the way and that's the best thing to do. And I don't think he's talked about it in, in the terms that I've started to think about it. But I kind of think a lot of the time when I'm drawing, I'm not really thinking about drawing or it's not it's not in mm. that kind of conscious bit of the brain. It's not quite muscle memory. It's not quite it's it's it's, it's like something slow. slightly outside of myself almost. Mm. And and or at least that's what it is when I'm doing my, what I consider with the stuff that I like best that I do. Which is mostly stuff that mm. appears in my notebooks and isn't actually for purposes of publication. It's when my mind is freest and my hand is freest and my pen is freest. And it's that's when more interesting stuff to me comes out. And there's there's something about getting out of the way of yourself and letting letting that kind of subconscious bit of your brain be in charge and that in concert with your hand, which has drawn a bunch by now. Uh, they kind of know what they're doing. And if I don't get in the way by going, mm. oh, this is what I want you to do, it's better results. I get little themes when I'm drawing for fun in sketchbooks. Just prior to A Boy and a Bear in a Boat starting to be written, I've drawn a lot of bears. Lately, there's been horses, which is rare, and evil cats. And uh, just lately, it's it's people with eyeballs for heads. <laughs> and I'll have these little, little themes. And, you know, that would not necessarily sit so well mm. in in a children's book but it's it's just you know yeah i think it's really what you everything you just said is really interesting because there's a lot of analysis from a visual literacy perspective analysis of what's in the image which i think is really valid and useful but it's almost it is separate from the intent of the creator because so often that's so innate and also, as a viewer, you never know what someone intended you to, to feel or think. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can have a suspicion. But also, you're bringing so much of yourself to it that it's almost irre- irrelevant what people, <laughs> what the creator wanted at the point of it's like left to your hands and it's in the hands of the reader yeah, or the viewer. I, it's more about them at that point, isn't it? Yeah, I hadn't heard of the whole concept of the death of the artist. As you say, you create a thing and then it goes out into the world and then it's not yours anymore, it's the audience's. And I hadn't particularly heard of that, but it, with A Boy and a Bear in a Boat in particular, I'd written it in a very open fashion, such that mm. it was very open to interpretation. Yeah. And I heard, you know, there were some fairly definite things that I intended, but I didn't mind if people didn't get. There were some bits where I just thought, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's interesting, so I'm leaving it in. And there was lots of scope for interpretation. And when it came out, and people, particularly because it got, 
Carnegie shortlisted, so it got yeah. into the shadowing process. So lots of people wrote shadowing reviews of it, about a third of which were really hating it, which was hilarious. No, oh, it, was, it was fine. I don't, you know. <laughs> Some people like to be told what to think. Well, it, they don't was, like open-ended uh, open things. It's <laughs> irrelevant tangent it's it's a it's a quirk of the carnegies that i think they may be slightly addressing it since but at the time anyway a lot of the shadowing groups were basically in secondary schools and there were a bunch of teenagers expecting to read exclusively ya novels on the carnegie shortlist yeah. and they got this weird yeah. little fable yeah. for seven and up and it's yeah. that that's a book that appeals to probably slightly younger than seven up to about 12 and then there's some teenagers that hate it and then there's loads of adults that think it's great but there's a there's little there's a little band within which an awful lot of carnegie shadowing groups were saying this is what is this meant to be it's pointless uh anyway in the in the process of it of it being reviewed there were various kind of theories about it and there were a bunch of things where I thought, oh, I hadn't thought of that, but that's interesting. And there were there were only one or two where I thought, no, no, absolutely not, uh, which was mostly when people were taking a, a religious angle with it, which I wasn't particularly happy with. But I can't, you know, I can't really complain because, as I say, I'd, I'd left it very open to interpretation. People are going to do that. And it's having those sort of layers of meaning. Again, I'm veering into asking you whether something's deliberate, which I don't know if that's that helpful a question. But it seems to be something that's really central to to your writing is having these kind of layers of meaning. Are you driven by wanting to say something within your stories? It varies from book to book, and so like the Emily Lyon books were were written pretty much just as pure entertainment. I think the others have a bit of something else going on and it's something i suppose is is a bit like it's a bit like drawing the notebooks i get, i try to get it out of the way so i think there's something more there because i don't get in the way of it getting through i'm expressing this very badly i, I wouldn't i wouldn't want anything to be in there to kind of straightforwardly and directly but i think yeah there's stuff about kind of you know my general attitude to life my in the loosest possible sense philosophy mm. that certainly crept into boy in a bear in a boat i sent a copy of boy in a bear in a boat to my old english teacher mrs ball who was my english teacher when i was about 11 12 13 who was a brilliant teacher absolutely wonderful and she was kind enough to write to me and i think she saw from my my writing some kind of level of compassionate outlook or mm. something in there and i was flattered because uh, i should stress she didn't remember me from school at all she made this very clear <laughs> bless her <laughs> so, oh, that's brilliant <laughs> so you were completely forgettable she was well you know you she was my she was my one <laughs> She was my one English teacher for those three years, and and I was one of you know several hundred yeah. kids that passed before. Apparently, not one of the memorable ones. And that's fine. <laughs> no, I, I do totally understand. But yeah, she had seen some. She thought something of my character within my within my writing, which to some extent, I, I guess, is inevitable. Thank you so much. It's been really, really interesting. I usually end the podcast with asking guests for a couple of takeouts or things that they'd like to leave educators thinking about or maybe perhaps drawing on some of your experiences that you've had with on school visits and things like that it doesn't have to be specifically around comics could be writing and illustration based but just something maybe some food for thought that we can ponder on after listening to the episode 
I'm a bit reluctant to say the idea that comics are a way in for reluctant readers. I have some issues with, but it's also very true. <laughs> I have issues with it. <laughs> I'm, if, I'm in the same place, as actually. If, as if, as if <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't like that it's kind of, oh, well, you know, if we, if we can get them started with, with the training wheels, they can move on to proper books as if. And, you know, yeah, God knows yeah, there's plenty agree. of comics that are trash. And there's, uh, but there's also plenty yeah. of prose that is trash, and actually, what's wrong with reading a bit of trash in any case? But also, there's there's fine examples of both. Ooh, so I, I do. I mean, I like watching Married at First Sight, <laughs> so that's <laughs> you're, you're outside of my realm. I'm of not. I'm not a defender of the highbrow. <laughs> so there's there's that. There's a that. It, you know a. It's not necessarily trash just because it's comics, but also if it was trash, isn't it? I think you know with very rare exceptions all reading is good reading and this idea that you would move on from comics rather than just going uh, as i have <laughs> oh well that seems to be the form for me and and you know i i always read prose as well and i always will read prose as well and sometimes i read prose rather than comics because i haven't got the energy i spotted myself mm. doing this once i kind of had various stuff by the side of the bed to read I picked up whatever comic-y thing I had. I thought, I'd, actually, I don't. I'm too tired for that. I, I can manage that that book of prose there, but that particular comic, whatever it was, is a you know a higher degree of processing that I'd have to do, and I don't have the energy at the moment. So the idea that yeah, comics is an e easy option is absolute rubbish. But that said, I think there's a naturalness to the process of reading comics that children have and then lose. I have a, a friend who's an extremely clever professor you know brain the size of a planet can't read a comic hasn't got the skills doesn't you know doesn't know do i look at pictures first do i read the balloon first do i read the caption first can't do it but absolutely you know phenomenally but i bet when she was 10 she could and i do not and will never understand what what's going on there but there's there's something instinctual i think might be the word about how to read comics and something i have witnessed is that uh, you know i go i go into schools quite a bit and i will quite often ask the question so who likes comics whether or not i'm talking about books or i'm talking sometimes i do cartooning workshops sometimes i do writing workshops sometimes i just talk about me but i will normally at some point say so who like you know who likes comics and some places lausanne's go up some places hardly any do but in some of the places where hardly any hands go up you stick some comics on a table in the middle of the room and everybody will want to take a look and everybody will read and know mm. how they work, and everybody will like them. It's just that some of them don't do it normally. It's a really natural form to comprehend until you've got entrenched in other forms of uh, other mediums of narrative, and then you understand how films work and how prose works, but you, you've suddenly lost the ability to read four panels of Peanuts. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very odd. The one final thing I ask guests on the podcast to leave listeners with is a recommendation, something to read, a comic graphic novel that we could add to our to-be-read pile. What would you recommend? Just okay. one. Think of something um, that might intrigue or interest us. It's an adaptation of Victor Hugo's The Man Who Laughs, written by David Hine and drawn by Mark Stafford, who's a mate of mine. And who is probably my favourite 
cartoonist working currently. I just think he's amazing and he happens to be a, a friend. Tremendous, tremendous talent. And David Hine and Mark Stafford have done a, a number of books together and they're, they're all good. But possibly Victor Hugo just br- brought enough to the party that I, I think that remains... That's something they did about mm. 10 years ago, I think. That remains the 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 best of what they've done, but it's all good stuff, and it's just tremendous work. Mark he can throw ink about like hardly anybody else, and he can do funny, and he can do squishy horror, and he can do noodly noodly lines like you wouldn't believe. He's he's great, and he's also very good at the black and white. You'll be interested to hear. He's very good with the colour too. Well, next time you see him, ask him if he thinks of the world in black and white. Okay, <laughs> we'll do. <laughs> I would. I'm, I'm going to ask every single person this question now until I get a, until I get a proper answer. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant to hear about your process and your thoughts about stories and putting images and words together. So thank you so much. It's been great to have it's you on. It's been a very great pleasure. Thank you, Lucy. And there we have it. I loved that chat. I would definitely recommend exploring Dave's work if you haven't already. And A Monster in the Wood is available for pre-order now. It's coming out in August, so not very long to wait. I'll put a link to that in the Padlet, which you can access in the show notes. Dave mentioned Mark Stafford there, his mate. Um, Just happens to be the Cartoon Museum's cartoonist in residence. Mark, if you're listening, do get in touch. I would really love to know if you visualise your black and white illustrations in black and white. We're always here for the hard-hitting questions on Comic Boom. So, yeah, please do get in touch. I'd love to know the answer. My recommendation this week, actually, what I'm reading at the moment is quite by coincidence a monochromatic book, um, strictly for adults, this one. But I've recently discovered the work of Gareth Brooks. That's Gareth Brooks, and Brooks has an E in it. If you try and Google Gareth Brooks without the E, you Google just wants you to be searching for Garth Brooks really, really badly. So yeah, put that E in. I'll also put his website into the show notes so that you can find him more easily than I could when I was looking after seeing some of his work in a lecture that I was in. His book that I have got a copy of now is The Black Project, a graphic novel, really, really interesting. It's um, about a boy who makes himself a girlfriend. I haven't finished the story yet, but the artwork is incredible. It's all created with lino cut and embroidery. And I just love the really different approach to image making. And I also just, the whole thing's a bit disconcerting, really, and a little bit weird, which I always enjoy. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Please do like, share, subscribe, tell all your friends about the podcast. Even if you think they might not be interested in comics, I think there's a lot of interesting content on here that we can really draw people in. So please do share away. You can reach out to me on Twitter on at Lucy underscore Braidley. And you can also find my contact details in the show notes. I had an absolutely lovely email this week from someone who said that listening to the podcast had really boosted their confidence and that they were now going to start a comics club in their school in September. And I was absolutely thrilled to get that. It was brilliant. So please do reach out. I'd love to hear what you are up to. That's it for me this week. My name is Lucy Starbrook-Bradley, and you have been listening to Comic Boom. Comic Boom.